This is a podcast about time. The time it takes to become an artisan. Heritage. Saving to buy something you'll keep forever. Sustainability. Memories attached to clothing that you've loved and lived in. And the longevity of friendship. To us, the true definition of luxury. I'm Lynn Coleman. Join me and my friend Jill Brown as we chat about what makes luxury so special. Jill. Yes. We went out. We went out. We didn't go out, out, but we almost, you went out, out because you drank. I did. I drank. Okay, let's, let's fill everybody in. Um, before crazy lockdown kicked in, um, Jill and I went on a road trip to Fife from Edinburgh. Woo-hoo! I mean, before all of this, that wouldn't have been a particularly fun thing to do, but we've not been anywhere in a year. So we had a great time and it was a very, very, very special place in itself, but also a very, very special place for whiskey that we went to. Yes. So I have been battering on for the last, what, 13 weeks or so about how marvellous our water is, how geographically soft it is and how that has had an impact in our luxury sector from wool all the way right through to food and drink. And then Jill and I realised that as we sat here waxing lyrical about all of this stuff, that we knew nothing about whiskey, like nothing, like genuinely nothing. I obviously spoke about um, the Johnny Walker story, I think like in episode three of the of the Cashmere book, um, as my introduction. But apart from that, we really didn't know much. And so we thought we would rectify that. And you roped in a very good friend of yours, that's right. I mean, it's been at least an episode since we mentioned St Andrews. And um, he is my best friend from university, or one of my best friends from university, Graham. And he's very high up in the Scotch Whiskey Association and was appalled. I mean, I think it probably co- almost cost me our friendship, our lack of knowledge of whiskey. Meh. So he set us up on a lovely whiskey date with the people at Linder's Abbey. Yes. Now, the story behind Linder's Abbey is one that will totally blow you away because it is everything that is magical about losing something, finding something, and then bringing something back to life. It's almost like a modern day fairy tale. Um, so the the wonderful chap who owns it and runs it and has been in his family since 1913 um, they had no idea. 1903, I think. Was it 1903? Okay, well, you, actually, you're about to find out because Drew will tell you um, through the story, and it, which we'll get to. Um, but so, yeah, they had no idea. His gr- his grandfather bought a farm in Fife that had an abbey ruin attached to it, um, with just over 90 acres of land, and then. They, you know, they farmed it. That's 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 what they did. But they had no idea that there was a connection um, to the monks that were in those in the abbey um, in the fourteen hundreds, as the earliest record on the checker on on the exchequer, sorry, to the king, um, that they were making whiskey. So it's the first ever record anywhere written down. Um, so it's kind of it, it became this this. Um, pilgrimage um, and he didn't know anything about it and he used to drive motorcycles around this gorgeous crumbly abbey that's in his back garden um, so we went up to Fife and had a wander around for the day 
and sampled some really, really yummy drinks, uh, one of which I've pimped, and I'm calling it the Lindor, the L-Y-N-N-E. <laughs> there we go. Um, and so they, they have this, um, they call it Aquavite. It's the, it's the stuff that becomes whiskey, but obviously whiskey takes three years and a day to age. Um, but obviously it's still alcohol before that. Um, and so it's perfect for cocktails, which, hello, <laughs> cue Lynn and Jill. We love a cocktail. We do love a cocktail. So their signature cocktail with that is ginger ale, the aquavite and some orange. And I've gone one better than that, Jill. I'm going to make So we it. tried this. We tried this. We came home because I was driving. I mean, my partner in crime's not an idiot. She doesn't drive. So <laughs> I had to wait till we came home to try it. And we tried it. And, and so we did it before it was the L-Y-N-N-E Lindor. Um, we um, had it with the ginger ale and uh, the orange. And it is absolutely delicious. Mm. And we were both saying it's a really different kind of... No, you feel different when you drink a spirit to how you drink a wine, I think. And we both, I mean, it's 40% people, like, be warned. Fire be water. Ca- be careful. Yeah. Um, so we, Len obviously made us the first one with a 60ml measure each. It'd been a long day. and uh, But we just both felt, like, really warm and relaxed. Yeah. It was a really quite... A massage. A, yeah, it was. It mm. was like a cocktail massage. Yes, and I'd, I had some frozen cherries because we didn't have any ice because um, it's freezing, it's currently winter, obviously. Um, so we didn't have any ice, but we did have frozen cherries. So we popped some frozen cherries in ours to to make the drink cold, and that was really delicious. So the pimped version of that, then this weekend became you're going to love this. Mm-hmm. So you do half a big sort of chunky red wine goblet glass, right? That's that's what I'm putting no this messing, in. no messing about. Um, also, just because it lets that smell and the, the flavours just get all gorgeous. Um, so you kind of put half of the glass full of frozen cherries. Then you do a measure of the aquavite. Um, then you put two, I did two uh, satsumas of orange in. So like a big squeeze. A big squeeze. So two of those, a little bit of the rind. And then I topped it up with Prosecco. Oh my. For those of you who don't know Lynn, Lynn is the biggest lightweight you will, like one wine gum and she's anyone's. So please tell me you only drank one of those. I had two and I was absolutely gubbed, but it was glorious. And how did you feel the following day? I had no hangover. Like genuinely no hangover. It's, it's bonkers. Well, I'd had it with dinner. Um, I say dinner, frozen pizza. Very glamorous. <laughs> this is a guide to luxury after all. Um and so no, it was fine, and I, I drank water. I'm not. I'm. I'm a terrible. I need to always have water. So yeah, no, no, no. I, I, no, no hangover at all. Slept like a baby, obviously. That sounds absolutely delicious. So I'll do. I'll. I'll get you one of those. But anyway, back to the roadshow. So what you're about to hear is the few hours that we spent at the Abbey inside this newly created distillery, um, which is very, very sweet because this newly created distillery actually has over 500 years of heritage attached to it and it's about three years old. So Drew talks about this a lot, about the timing of his life and how he had no idea growing up that this was even a part of the fabric of of the place that he lived in and loved. 
And so, yeah, we go on a journey there. And a, and a lot of it, actually, we'll, we'll talk about this um, probably later in, later down the line. But a lot of what he was saying reminded me of a book I read um, a few years back by Napoleon Hill, um, which is uh, Think, Think and Grow Rich, which follows Carnegie around and why successful people are successful. And a lot of how he was speaking, you know, about if you don't ask, you don't get, and seizing opportunities really resonated. There was a lot of, of pieces of information that he gave us that made me think about that. And so I hope that even though this is, this is the beginning of their story and their first whiskey comes of age on Christmas Eve this year, 2020. The 20th, the 20th of December. Oh, was it? I thought it was Christmas Eve. I'm getting way too romantic in my old age. Um, but anyway, yeah, it comes of age just just before Christmas 2020 even though there's 500 years worth of heritage you know well I hope that this will be around for hopefully another 500 years I think what's so nice about it is it really resonates with us as well doesn't it I think there was all these signs that sort of appeared at the right time for them and made them and I think what it really showed me is what happens when you just say yes or you just go, okay, let's give it a go or... You send an email to someone or, yeah, you just, you start conversations. And you'll discover that there's an absolute fork in the road for Lindor's Abbey and that it actually could have at one point become a new built housing estate. Yeah. But just things happen for a reason. I'm quite a superstitious person, but there's so many points that Lindor's Abbey could have just been forgotten or never been discovered and it's an incredible role as a spiritual home of Scottish whiskey, just never, never come to fruition or anything. Yeah. So it feels like a very special place. It really does. It, and it was, it was glorious up there that day. It was cold and crisp with a really bright cerulean sky. And Fife just looked phenomenal. And yeah, there was a lovely touch of magic in the air. And the Abbey ruins are beautiful. And, and they are on the, 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 they are the backyard of, of Drew and his, his family's house. And then the steading, which they converted, is the, the physical working distillery. Um, and you'll hear this in part two of, of the, the podcast that we're going to do on this. Um, they found out that one of the original wells, remember, was, right. was just literally at the back end of the steading that's been converted. So where the, the, the cattle would go to bed, essentially, 100 years ago, 500 years ago, that's where the original whiskey was being brewed. And you couldn't make that stuff up for serendipity. It's just, we're so excited to share this story with you because it's right up our street and we hope that it'll be right up yours too. We both ended up running the sampling and we were cooking for Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. It was, it was, it was great. It was, it was a laugh. I mean, it was brilliant fun. For... Was that in the 90s? It would have been, well... I'm always rubbish with dates, but I can always date it whenever their film Eyes Wide Shut 90s. came out. That would be the 90s. Because that's why they were staying there for, for weeks on end when they were filming that. So yeah, no, it was a venture. This has always been, Lindor's has always been home uh-huh. in that my grand, the whole reason we're standing here now, the whole reason there's a distillery, was granddad bought the farm, great granddad bought the farm in 1913. Wow. But we had no idea at all that there was any whiskey connection. A guy called Michael Jackson, he, who sadly has passed away, but he was the leading beer and whiskey writer. 
uh, who I'd never heard of, none of us had heard of him. And I think Helen and I were living in Edinburgh at the time, and Dad phoned up and said, God, it's really... It just came up in conversation. So this guy turned up and asked if we would walk around the Abbey Ruins, which are over there, which in those days didn't happen. It was just part of the farm. And so Dad said, well, yeah, knock yourself out. <laughs> you know, go for a walk. Thought it was a nice thing. Never thought any more of it. And then about six or seven months later, this lovely hardback book arrived called Scotland and its Whiskies. And it opened up and it said, Dear Ken, thank you very much. Turn to page 170 or something like that. Dad did that. On a page 170, there's a lovely picture of the Abbey Ruins. And the, the head of the chapter was for the whiskey lover, it is a pilgrimage. And then it was all about Lindor's Abbey and him walking around and saying a silent St. Dionysian prayer to Friar John Cor, who, who none of us had heard of. And it's... And that's why this is a pilgrimage, because the first written reference to Scotch whisky. I think it's commonly accepted that whisky, in one form or other, existed beforehand, but the whole industry bases itself all the way back to 1494. And that's because in the Exchequer Roll, and I've had the privilege now of seeing it, it still exists, it's a 30 yard long sort of vellum parchment, it's in Edinburgh. And I've got a huge debt of gratitude to whoever found this, because it's, as I say, it's 30 yards long, and it's the king's tax records for 1494. And buried in the middle of it, which even though I now know where it is, if someone said, where is that? So buried right in the middle of it, in Latin, is to Friar John Cor, eight bowls of malt, wherewith to make aqua vitae for the king. And Friar John Cor was a monk in Lindor's Abbey, King was King James IV at Falkland Palace. And so it's like, wow, yeah. So that was that was nuts. And so and that was... where you used to play there. Well, it was. It? You know, I used to, you know, I, I kind of don't... I used to drive a motorbike around the ruins. It was just it was a nice thing to have in your gut. So that was like, wow, this is too big not to kind of do much about. But the, the funny... It's funny how it works. So this is 20-odd years ago, and the whiskey industry was down then. And I thought, well, God, I've got to try and do something about it. I don't know anything about whiskey. I don't know anything about the whiskey industry. And it was also, and this dates the whole thing, relatively early days even of the internet, pretty much. So I thought, what I'll do, and this is when I was still chefing, and I thought, it was after a busy night, and I thought, well, I'll just look up whiskey societies. And alphabetically, the first one was one called Anne Quake, which was based in Canada. So I sent a wee thing saying, you know, this is on our farm, I'm thinking I'd really like to open a weave. It was almost like a hut. You know, we weren't talking about distilleries or anything like that. And I thought, you know, what do you think? And I didn't, I just sent it. Yeah. And the next morning there was this thing from Anquake, from this guy whose name escapes me at the moment, but anyway, from him. And it was absolutely mad in the sense, you know, this is the biggest news in whiskey in 100 years. The companions of the quake will set fire to the heather and all sorts of stuff. Oh, it, wow. it, well, it really was. And that's when I thought, well, you know, I've got, I must do something about it. I then thought, I well, actually, taking my motorbike well, well, I must. But also then I did think, hang on, because of the time difference, you might have had a few drafts before he sent it. <laughs> but, but without that email, this probably wouldn't happen because that's what fired me up. And what was really nice is the chap who was the president of the society came here with them actually before, just not long before shutdown. So it was probably the end of last year. So it was really from Canada and America that I got all the support, especially from Americans. They were saying, 
they were never in, they were never rude or insulting, but they were saying they couldn't get their heads round why a place that's the spiritual home of Scotch whiskey, plus we have William Wallace. There's a million things that are tied to Lindors, but it was just our farmsteading. It was falling apart, and they couldn't understand. They were saying, you know, if this is in the states. There would, it would be a sort of national monument, etc. And I, I said, look, I, you know, God, I agree with you. And that, that must have been really scary because at that point, when you start opening that story up, then there are people who start seeing pound signs above your heads rather than understanding that this is your life. Yeah. And there's history and heritage. Well, that's it. Yeah, it was a far bigger thing for us because yes. also, also Helen and I, you know, had to make a living as well. So it was like, well, how much do you commit to this? And so at the very beginning, I did commit quite a lot of time. I mean, luckily in a sense, because of our work. So by that stage, I was talking about the Samling. I'd gone to the Samling. So we moved to a few exclusive use properties, which is great um, lifestyle-wise. So our two daughters grew up in all these super castles and things like that without having to pay, well, without us having to pay the bills. So that was a plus. And also with exclusive use, you're either really, really busy or it's empty. So when they're empty, you've got time O'Reilly. So I had quite a lot of spare time. Helen was always busy because whether there's guests or not, I feel about it, there's a million things to do. But I did have time to kind of pursue it. I didn't really have, have much money or commit any money to it. But a lot of research, you could argue 20 years worth of research. But after about two and a half years of getting great feedback from people, but not that wasn't translating into money ultimately I decided well you know what it was a really nice idea we still own the farm we're still you know this is still a nice thing to have as a home but let's just drop it so I kind of did you know and we thought well that's you know it was a flash in the pan and then about probably about six years ago now a guy that had been really helpful first time round, very well connected in the industry phoned up I mean it really was out of the blue and he said Drew what you know what you're doing with the Lindor's and I kind of said, well, actually, to be quite honest, nothing. You know, it was, I think the ship sailed. Because it shows in a way how much it had sailed that I wasn't even aware that six years ago was the beginning of all these distilleries cropping up and being built. And he said, well, look, it's now or never. You know, this is the time to do it. So it was real kind of carpe diem stuff. And I thought, okay, well, let's, let's, I'll, I'll revisit it. And he was saying, you've still got all the trademarks. And I said, yeah, I've got the trademarks. And then hung up, I thought, Christ, I better check. And, and I, said, yeah. I, I say all the trademarks, it was really just mainly Lindor's. And I thought, God, I'd let it lapse. And to renew a trademark is, is a couple of hundred quid, so I thought, I'll just do that, that's not a problem. And then I got a letter from Lint Chocolate, who do Lindor. And I thought, oh, God, you know, objecting to, to Lindor's, and I thought, oh, God, what do I do? And then luckily this guy came who at that stage was still in the industry, he's retired now, and, I, he's, and he's, a, he's a very sort of wise guy. I said, what do you think I should do? And he said, well, you can't go head to head because you, you'll lose. He said, treat it, not jokingly, but go back to them. So this is what I did. I went back to them. Come on, guys. See, this was built by the brother of the king in 1191. You know, I love chocolate. You know, don't get me wrong. I love the Lindor's bunnies and blah, blah, blah. And to much to their credit, they did eventually... And they must have racked up quite big lawyers' fees, and I didn't do anything, I just sent emails. To give them their credit, they agreed that as long as I didn't do chocolate... A whiskey chocolate. Yeah, a whiskey chocolate. Damn it, no, yeah. all I want is whiskey yeah, chocolate. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and so that was it. So to give them... Because so, without the name Lindors, I would have been slightly up yeah. the creek. But a, a great other example of making your own luck 
is the story for Lindor's is there's two sides there's Lindor's and there's Friar John Cor. you know so without the Friar John Cor, I would have been it would have been a really difficult fit and I one day when I was chefing I was listening to the radio and the then chairman Paul Walsh was on the radio chatting about the whiskey industry etc and the chairman of Diageo is arguably the most important person in, in the industry and um Anyway, he was chatting about all sorts of things. And then I kind of caught it. He was saying, well, it's, it's the industry's duty to preserve the heritage. And at this point in our Hellenized, peripatetic, chefing, living career, we were running Glenmorangie House, which was owned by Glenmorangie. A great place. And so I was chefing there. So I was listening to this whilst at Glenmorangie House. And I thought, wow. And because I was at Glenmorangie, I managed to get hold of his email, which I probably shouldn't have done, but... So I emailed him and said, God, I just heard you on the radio talking about this, that and the other, and I, I think that's fantastic. I said, well, here's, a, here's a chance. Because I knew they had Diageo owned Friar John Corps. So I said, well, what about, you know, you, you give that to me kind of thing. Never expecting to hear back. And about two days later, I got an email from his PA saying, well, I'd like to talk to you. So they gave me, it really was. So, and there was no strings attached or anything like that. Lucky me, I had both. But if you don't ask, you don't get kind of thing. So, so I had the, the trademark sorted out. So we opened in 2017. And what, it was quite good timing. This. So, so with whiskey, it has to sit in the cast for three years and a day. So this, our new make spirit, comes of age on the 20th of December. So, so the story, you could argue, the story that started in 1494, and then in 1913, great-granddad buying it. Uh, John Howison. So he bought, and what's really nice is it was sold through you know Knight Frank and Rutley as they were, and it was in their offices on Princess Street in Edinburgh. And we still have you know if you buy a house now you'll get one sheet of A4. So there's still this lovely book, and it was you know it's three it's got a signature it's three grand for the farm the house, and it was about ninety eight acres, and that's always so we're very lucky so. Our daughters are fifth generation, and they do a bit of the PR and things like that. So it's a really nice thing. So through doing that, we can keep it in the family. You know, without that, you have a falling down farm, and that's actually another bit of serendipity in a sense. So as I say, it's falling down. We were as skint as everyone else's skint. You know, you can have some land, but can't do anything with it. And my uncle's steading, which is just next door got converted into from a farm study into housing it's really nice etc and I approached the guys that did it so well, what about our studying you'd like to develop that and because uh, we did have planning permission for housing and the guy came along and he, he made me an offer which actually I genuinely thought was low I said no that's that's not nearly enough and then it was so it was, then the housing crash happened I mean, it was, I'm probably saying, probably exaggerating when I say it's the next week, but it was very yeah, soon yeah. after that. So I got back in touch and I said, well, you know, sort of changed my mind a bit. It maybe it wasn't that low, but let's, let's do it. And he said, well, actually, we can't do it now. So that's one of, the, that's one of those sliding door moments, I always think, because if we'd taken that... We could be standing in a new building. Yeah, and I'd be sitting over there crying into my pillow thinking, oh. But, yeah, so yes. it is. Perfect. Yeah. Well, you know, that you know, what's the Scottish thing where... You know, my granny used to say, you know, if it's not for you, they gang by you. Yeah. So in a way, that's what we feel here. And so we've, we've kind of lucked out. And here we are a month away from having whiskey. 
So cool. I just got a wee shiver. So the monks here were Tyrannensian. They don't exist anymore. They were really powerful for a few hundred years. They come from a tiny wee village in France, about 50 miles south of Paris, called Tiron Garde. And they had been, and they, they have a monastery, and they still exist because they didn't have the reformation of the monasteries. So the monastery wouldn't have existed. I always think this is history. You know, history is, is cyclical. I'm not a historian. These are all things that are kind of learned from here. So the monastery thrived because of the Crusades. Because the monks from this, is not the monks, the, the nobles had to go and fight in the Crusades. Whether they wanted to or not, that's, that's what they had to do. And they would give the monasteries money and land and really all the, all the monastery had to do in return is, is say a prayer for the wheel of our soul. So they're saying prayers more for the family of the, the soldiers. They probably thought they weren't going to come yes. back. So say a prayer for the wheel of our soul and burn a candle. And we thought, it was really a last minute thing. I thought, God, you know what? The abbey existed for all that time. And now it doesn't exist at all. So the, the nights were kind of short-changed by about 500 years. So we thought, well, this is a nice thing. We'll relight the candle. We're not going to join hands and say prayers all day and all this sort of stuff. But just relighting the candle, we thought it was a nice nod to that. So we call this the cloister. And as I say, during the day, normally during the day, we have loads of visitors in. But for me, it was I wanted people to come and, and see what the monks brought to this area. So what our guys brought, the Tyrannensians, are these things. So it's masonry. So this is one of the other bits we found. You know, these were buried in the... You know, you think that was carved out eight, nine hundred years ago. Just beautiful. I find that mind-blowing. So... I, I can't quite get no, my head around it. Where it's sometimes when I walk around the abbey, I mean, as I say, sadly, nine-tenths of it's gone. But you see the base of some of the pillars, and they're properly carved. I mean, I wouldn't be able to... Well, it's like Rosalind Chapel. Yeah, oh Rosalind yeah. Chapel, and you're like, how did they do yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, some bits of it absolutely fry your brains, yeah. some, some of the stuff they did. So what we did here was, in a way, it was, as I said at the very beginning, we're not really even talking about whiskey, we're talking about what these the people brought here, because without them, we wouldn't do it. You know, it almost looks like um, when you go to church and you have the Stations of the Cross, down the pews, yeah. except you've got it down the tables. That's, that's what it feels like yeah. just now. And people can wonder about it. You know, they can look at one or they can look at none and, and things like that. But when they go away, they'll learn a wee bit more. You know, because no one knew, but because Lindell, because the Abbey was in private hands, on a wee road in Fife that no one drives down, no one knew anything about it. And I, I'm guilty, or I was guilty, of not knowing, you know, it was good for motorbike riding. So this is a big map, what, from the 15th century of Europe? Yes, yeah. yeah. The, the reason, the, the, main, the main reason was to, to kind of back the story. So our aqua vitae, the, the spirit we made instead of gin, when I was building this place, or when we were building it, the question I was asked more than any single thing was, are you making a gin? In fact, it got to the point of, you will be doing a gin. There's hundreds of gins. The bank manager probably saying you should have done a gin, but I said, no, we can't do that because our providence, our provenance is all about the monks. And they did all sorts of things. They didn't make gin. So we thought, well, how did they make aquavitae? We researched that. We know what plants grew here back in the 13th, 14th century, because they're in one of these books. And we work with Harriet Watt University, who have a brewing and distilling department. Mm -hmm. Um, and they were great, but they were such sort of scientists. So they started working out these recipes. And they'd phone up and say, we've got a new recipe. And Helen and I go through and say, oh, this is great. Please make it nice. 
and each time we went through, it was historically correct, and they'd used plants that we'd said, but it was rank. I can see from yeah. your face yeah. that that was, it was not even, even, even thinking about it, it was good. Yeah. And then, in a way, two, two brain ways were, well, because at the time we were using this neutral spirit, which is more like a gin, and we thought, why are we doing that? If we're, if they, if we're saying this is the original whiskey, we should be using barley spirit. So that was the first thing that changed it. But it still wasn't right. And then the cleverest thing we did is say, look, let's forget the student. It's nice and great, and they're always mentioned as, as part of the story. We moved it from the students to the kind of mixologists, the bar people. So the, the guys at um, Timber Yard, for instance, in Edinburgh. So we got that Joe Radford and said, look, come on, guys, how do we make this nice? And in simple terms, is to make it a wee bit sweeter. Mm-hmm. And we thought, well, how do we do that? We didn't want to make it really sweet. We didn't want drambu, but it did need that bit of sweetening. But I was sort of saying, well, that's great, but we can't, we're not putting, we can't do anything false because everything in it's natural. So what we ended up doing is experimenting with dried fruits and eventually dried dates and raisins work brilliantly. So the aquavitae would be absolutely clear, but the dates and raisins obviously make it a wee bit more like whiskey, so it's amber. What it did do is change our idea, because originally we thought we were selling a spirit like a whiskey, but actually it's evolved into something that's for cocktails. And with uh, the main thing, our perfect serve is Acavito, a ginger ale and orange. Yum. And it's really, I'm like, again, I, it's where I would say is 40%. Uh, it's, it's quite dangerous <laughs> yeah. because you, you don't know you're drinking it. You know, you're talking about this just now. and um, So my background is textiles. And the thing that I always come back to is that even though we were here on this tiny little island, you know, for the last 200 years, particularly for textiles, what we were great at as tradespeople was going out and yeah. finding the most incredible materials to yeah. bring back. Yeah. You know, like, so for wool, it was going to Mongolia to bring yeah. it back here to plunge it into the water. Yeah. So, uh, you know, don't feel like you have to be restricted by what's growing in the parameters because yeah. actually the monks would have been given gifts yeah. and, you know, they would have, the people coming back from the Crusades would have brought things. They would have brought, yeah. Well, the, the, well, that's exactly right because what we did, well, again, through the books, we know that the monks traded with Flanders. Yes. So in the books, there's all these trade things. So one of them is is 14 barrels of salmon. So the main currency the monks had was salmon from the River Tay. So 14 barrels of salmon to Flanders, two thrown overboard because they were rotten. And you think that's micro detail, but how cool is that? So really, so I could say to people that this is where it came, right up the spice route to Flanders and then up to Fife. But that's, so this is the stuff that just tickles me going into sort of textiles. And, and I, when I took Jill on this journey with me, um, everything for me was bound by our water. Yeah. So, you know, coming up and, and yeah. the water that you use and, mm-hmm. and you know, it's really, really geographically soft. But the thing that was exciting was that even though we were in this tiny little place, we just had access to the most incredible things coming yeah, in. Yeah. And, you know, things that would have come in for the king or things that would have come in exactly. from Leith or, yeah. you know, from, from whatever. Um, and this little map that we're looking at just now just crystallises that yeah. almost. Well, it worked, it worked brilliant because that's, that, that's the real reason, if you like. So, so it ties in with, say, the dates and reasons. That's where they came from up to the indoors. The other two bits are, it was to show that, so the Tyrannensians in a very short time, let's say it was 100 years, had 117 monasteries and priories, mostly in France. We also had Arbroath Abbey and a couple of other ones. And I thought, well, how the hell, you know, how can you build them? It must take ages. It turns out that 
the Tyrannensians were the favoured house, if you like, of the then King of France. And they were almost like the first franchise. So if there was monasteries and things that were not working well, he would put the Tyrannensians in. And then the King of Scotland was a pal of the King of France. And he said, well, you should use these guys. So that's how they ended up up here, you know, way out of their, their sort of comfort zone. But the other twist of this, which I was like, we get, we've had loads of politicians come through. And I always kind of point and say, look, it looks like Scotland's drunk, but it also looks like Scotland's trying its hardest to stay in Europe. And I've, I say that to all, you know, because I know some of them, I'll know what their leanings are before I say it, but they can't, because they're politicians, they that have to come. That makes me want to cry. Oh, I know, doesn't it? It's trying its hardest. Well, I always make a point of that. We wouldn't be here without the trade from Flanders, without the monks coming from France in the first place. We talk about that too a lot, that, you know, it's the couture houses in Paris mm. that are the backbone of our industry. You know, yeah. they, they yeah. absolutely adore what we do. And, and yeah, that, that trade... saved it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Chanel bought Barry, which is a, a knitwear um, firm down okay. in Hoyt. Yeah. They bought it in 2012. Yeah. Uh, cause, uh, because of exactly what you're saying, that they're, they, they understand the importance of provenance. So all, the, all these bits of history I'm talking about, but they're in the books because they're taken from papal bulls and documents and things like that. And one of the very first ones that appeared in Lindor's, or about Lindor's, was the monks had to get special papal dispensation to wear wool caps because it was too cold, because <laughs> they were used to nice warm France. So, and they got the dispensation, so they're allowed to wear wool caps unless they were praying. In the next episode, we continue our tour around Linders Abbey.